Well, we're focusing, as Neil was saying, on evangelism and <clears throat> in our home groups and everything. And as we were, I uh, started to think about something I read uh, some years ago in a book. And it was a book written by a Romanian Christian, and he had spent time in the prison camps. He was put in there as a, a Christian. There was a lot of Christians there, and they would frequently uh, witness to the other prisoners. And uh, <clears throat> there was this one Christian that was in his camp, in his barracks area, that was just such a powerful Christian. He was so filled with God's love, and he was always doing kind things. He would share his blanket if someone was cold. He would share his food, and there wasn't a lot of it, with someone who was sick. He would do all the dirty jobs, and he would endure everything with joy, and he just ministered to everybody. Of course, he was loved. Now, <clears throat> this new prisoner was put in there who is especially cruel and foul and angry and mean, and he loved to heap abuse on all the Christians. He mocked them. He mocked Jesus. He mocked the Bible. He ridiculed them when they tried to witness. But he watched this Christian. And so the Christian also tried to witness to him, and this foul man that would, he finally said, okay, I'm going to give you five minutes to tell me about Jesus, and then you promise never to bring it up again. He says, so you got five minutes. Tell me what your Jesus is like. And the Christian man was silent for a moment, and he said, well, he's like me. And it, the prisoner, the mean prisoner, was stopped in his tracks, and then his eyes began to well up with tears a few moments. And he said, well, if Jesus is like you, then I want to follow him. See, the greatest testimony we can ever have is when the love and the reality of Jesus shines forth from our life. It's the most powerful testimony we can ever have. And what I want to talk today about is I want to talk about uh, the greatest key to releasing the life of Jesus within, the love and the kindness and just that Jesusness that comes out. Now, I also want to talk about the largest impediment that stops that from happening. And we're going to begin reading in Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to begin with the first verse. For the law, since it was only a shadow, would you say the word shadow? shadow. It's a shadow. We're going to get back to that in a few moments. The law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of those things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offered continually in the Old Testament temple, they, uh, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So the Old Testament sacrifices could not bring to completion what God wanted to do. So, uh, Hebrews 10, 2. Otherwise, if they could, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshiper having once been cleansed, would no longer have a consciousness of sin. That's the second word I want you to think of. And that's going to be the bulk of what we're talking about, the consciousness of sin, because that is the greatest impediment that keeps us from really shining forth Jesus Christ to the world in all his fullness. Consciousness of sin. Verse 3 through 4. But in those Old Testament sacrifices... There is a reminder of year of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. 
So every year, the sacrifice for the nation's sin was a reminder that sin is a problem. Sin is our greatest problem. Now, a lot of people today don't think sin's an issue, don't think sin's a problem. But it's an issue with God. It always has been. It always will be. But these Old Testament sacrifices, they could not deal with the problem of sin, but they could be a reminder every year of the reality of sin. Now we're going to look at the word. Does everybody get that? Now we're going to look at the word shadow. Remember I said shadow? That these things, the laws and the temple ceremonies and sacrifices, were a shadow of the good things to come. The good things that are revealed in the New Testament were the coming of Jesus. What do they mean by shadow? Well, when someone walks towards you from the direction of the sun, the first thing that reaches you is their shadow. It's not the person themselves, but it's a promise that the person is coming. Because if the person wasn't coming, there would be no shadow. The shadow isn't even a picture of the person, but it's a rough outline of what that person looks like. Now, when Christ was in heaven preparing to come to earth, he cast a long shadow of prophecies, Old Testament prophecies, and of temple sacrifices and temple ceremonies. And all of these pointed back, they prepared us for the coming of Christ. But because they were merely shadows, they could not ultimately, as we read, forgive our sins or bring us into union with God or save us any more than your shadow can open a door or save a drowning man. That has to wait until you arrive. It's the same with Christ. Now, Old Testament believers, this is important, who trust in in those shadows, um, the sacrifices, they trusted what God's Word said, that their sins for that year would be forgiven because of that sacrifice. Jews who trusted in the shadows were counted as trusting in Christ to cast the shadow. By believing in the shadows, following the temple ceremonies, they were, in in a sense, uh, believing the one who was coming. However, because these shadows were only temporary, they could only deal with the judgment that was on sin. They couldn't ultimately solve the uh, sin problem. They had to be offered year over year. So they could deal with the penalty, but they could not deal with the consciousness of sin. That's what we were going to be mostly talking about. What is the consciousness of sin? The sin consciousness is an inner awareness that I have no right to stand before a holy God. It's, I'm unfit, I'm undeserving of his acceptance. Sin consciousness is the guilt that we carry around inside because of the wrong things that we have done. It's the shame that we feel and the brokenness that we feel because we've been abandoned, because we've been abused, because we've been rejected, and the guilt that we feel because of the wrong acts that we've done. Now, even Christians can struggle with this sin consciousness. And it's what keeps so many of us from experiencing the fullness of God, which therefore leaves us discouraged and weak 
It's the reason why a lot of Christians backslide. <clears throat> now, all of these Old Testament shadows were symbols. And we're going to look at, these t- at the temple because these shadows are a powerful testimony to the inspiration of, inspiration of Scripture and to the New Testament way of salvation. And for 1,200 years until the coming of Christ, uh, these were one of the main ways in which God spoke to people. The temple ceremonies, uh, the sacrifices, God was communicating through these. So we're going to go ahead and study a little bit just for a minute. It's important that we understand how God was speaking through the temple, how it prepared for the coming of Christ. And uh, we need to understand this. And after today, you'll know more than all your friends about the temple. So I'm going to really quickly look. We're going to put the tabernacle up. Remember, this whole tabernacle is a picture of the coming of Christ. So you'll notice this is the Old Testament tabernacle that they had in desert wanderings. It's much less ornate and large than the temple they would later build in Jerusalem. But its floor plan was the same. Its furnishings were the same. So I want to use this because it's easier. First thing you notice is, by the way, the temple is the entire area that's within the fence. That's called a temple. The Jewish people did not go in the tabernacle. Only the priests did. So when they went to worship, they were in the outer court there. So the first thing you notice is there's only one entrance. Do you notice that? There's no entrance in the sides. There's no entrance in the back. That's not convenient. Fire marshal would hate it. Why is that? It's because of what that gate represents. Jesus Christ said in John 10, 9, I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. But there's just one door. There's only one way to God. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me. Now, once you come through the one entrance, the only way in, and the first thing you encounter there, you see it? That is the brazen altar. That is where uh, sacrifices were given, especially the most important one that we're talking about, which is the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement. You know of it in the Hebrew, Yom Kippur when the sacrifice for the whole nation's sin was offered. So we come across that first because once we've been drawn by Christ, the first thing that we have to accept is his sacrifice. Until we cannot move on with God, until we admit that we are sinners who need forgiveness and we need a Savior and we receive his salvation. Now, once we do that and move past that, what's the next thing that you see there? It's not very clear, but it's a giant wash basin. It was very big. And that's where the priest would ceremoniously cleanse themselves. And we know after we receive the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, the way we receive it, and the first thing that we do is we get baptized. So after uh, they had been baptized or cleansed themselves, now they're ready to go into the tabernacle or the temple. And so we're going to put another picture up there. And this is a cutaway of the actual temple. And here's what you'll notice. Or that's the tabernacle too, I guess. Here's what you'll notice. First of all, it's not very large. And it's divided into two rooms. You see there's a curtain. It's a cutaway, so the curtain only goes halfway. But see that curtain in the last third of the building? Behind that was the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. Now, there are four pieces of furniture in that tabernacle or the temple. 
And we're going to take a look at what they mean because they're all a picture of Christ. So let's go ahead and first of all <clears throat> is the table of showbread. Now on this every day there were 12 large loaves that were baked. And the priests that were serving in the temple, they would eat that bread and they would be sustained that day by that bread. And Christ said, I am the bread of life. He sustains us every day with his life. The next thing was the golden lampstand. It was filled with oil had seven, uh, you can see seven candelabras. And uh, that was the only light that there was in the whole tabernacle or temple, just from that. And the same way Christ told us he is the light of the world, and he has to be our only light. We have to walk by his light, not walk by circumstances, not walk by feelings, not walk by the philosophies of the world. And the oil in there, of course, represents what? The Holy Spirit. Oil always represents the Holy Spirit. So Christ is the light of the world, and he shares with us his Holy Spirit, and by that we are illuminated, we are empowered, we are enlightened. Now right before the curtain, we're going to come across the third piece of furniture. It was right there where the curtain was between the holy place where the um, priest could minister and the holy place where they could not go. And Right before that was the altar of incense. The altar of incense had incense that would rise up towards heaven, towards God, every day, all the time. And this, of course, signifies the rising up of incense, a lot of you know, signifies worship and prayer and praise. Because that is the gateway. That is a way into the presence of God. Now, inside, on the other side of that uh, curtain, was the Ark of the Covenant, it's just, it's a chest. It's made of wood overlaid with gold. It represents Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is both human, wood, and divine. And that's represented by the overlaid cross. Now, there were three things. First of all, also, on the top, that's where the blood of the sacrifice would be placed because Christ is our sin bearer. Inside, there were three elements. There were three items inside that box. The first one is Aaron's uh, rod that budded. That may sound strange to some of you. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But in the Old Testament, uh, when, God, when Moses led Israel out of the wilderness and got the law from God, uh, God determined that priests could only come from one of the 12 tribes. There were 12 tribes that made up the nation of Israel. He determined that they could only come from the Levites. How many know God gets to determine who his leaders are? He sets the rules. Well, people never change. So what do you think the other 11 tribes did? That's not fair. Why can't I serve? Why can't, why can't I do that? Why don't we circulate it so that it's evenly split between all 12 tribes? Isn't that fair? Doesn't that make sense? So God had... Uh, Moses take from the lead elder of each of those tribes their walking stick, their staff. And he put that rod or that staff, he took it in to the, temp, to the tabernacle, he laid it down before that curtain, which God was symbolized as being behind that. In the morning when he got up, he gathered up those 12 rods, and Aaron's had budded. It had flowers and it had almonds on it. 
And that's because God was indicating that his choice for a Savior, his choice for an eternal high priest would be determined by resurrection life. So when Jesus Christ raised from the dead, it signified that he was, in fact, our Savior and our eternal uh, high priest. The next thing that was in there were the Ten Commandments, which Moses received from God on Mount Sinai. So they were placed in there, and that represents Christ because Christ is, the Bible says, he is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And so this points to Jesus, who is the ultimate communication of God to man. And the last thing that was in there was the jar of manna, and you'll remember manna was that uh, food, that, that heavenly miraculous food that the Jews would wake up to every day, the Israelites, and it was on the ground in their desert wanderings, and they would live on that. And in the New Testament, Jesus said, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. In other words, it was just a shadow. It couldn't eternally keep them going. It was temporary. Then he said, but I am the true bread that comes out of heaven, and I give eternal life. So everything in, as I was saying, everything in this temple thing is a picture of Christ. It's all a powerful illustration of God's plan throughout history. Now, we're going to talk about this idea of the consciousness of sin. So let's begin by saying this. Put yourself in the... uh, Put yourself in the high priest's um, mentality. First of all, in that temple, remember there were two rooms? A handful of priests each day served in the outer tabernacle, the outer room. But they were completely and totally forbidden from ever going beyond the curtain where God dwelled. Now, only one time during the year could anybody go in there, and that was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when the sacrifice, the bull was sacrificed for the sins of the entire nation. The high priest could take that blood into the holy place, excuse me, holy of holies, and put it on the Ark of the Covenant, and then he had to leave. Now, what you have to understand, too, is that a high priest can only serve for one year out of his entire life. And so that high priest on that day, put yourself in his mindset. As he went into the Holy of Holies, he knew he did not belong there. He knew he had no right to stand there. That he was on a one-day pass for maybe a half hour, one day of his entire life, carrying the blood because he was a representative for all of Israel. He was allowed to go in there for this one task of putting the blood on the top of the ark before God. So he was conscious that he was a sinner. He was conscious that he could not stand there. He really wasn't, in a sense, welcome there. And that's, my friend, what the consciousness of sin does. It puts a shadow over our soul that makes us feel that we are not acceptable to God. It makes us draw back from God so we don't accept his love. The consciousness of sin is, is uh, the opposite of God consciousness. It desensitizes us to God's presence so that we are afraid 
We can't accept his love. We feel disqualified from his favor, from his blessing, from his help. Now, the Old Testament sacrifices could not cleanse our consciousness of guilt and shame. The Old Testament sacrifices could not get us beyond the curtain. It could not make us fit to stand in the presence of God. And so God made those only temporary. He ended those because he had something far better than those temporary sacrifices. He had the once and all sacrifice of Christ planned. Now, this is very important. Watch what happened when Christ died on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. So he died on the cross at that moment. What happened? And behold, the veil or the curtain, that is the curtain in the temple, separating the presence of God from where the priest could go, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It's something that God did, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. You see, all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, contain the same story because it's so important. When Jesus Christ died, the temple was written, the, the temple curtain was rent because the way into God's presence is now open to all of God's people. It's been dealt away with. <laughs> Hebrews 9, 13. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth. Excuse me, Hebrews 9. For the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. He's saying that Old Testament blood, when it was put on the high priest, sprinkled on him, it, it sanctified him. So he could go into the presence of God for that one time and not face judgment. Now, if that worked to take away the judgment of sin, how much more will the eternal, will the blood of the eternal Son of God, here it goes, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The blood of the, 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 blood of the bulls worked for what it was meant to do. But the blood of Jesus works. The blood of Jesus does so much more than just take away the penalty of sin. The punishment of sin. It does so much more. It says that it removes the consciousness of sin. It gives us a new heart and a clear conscience so that we can serve God with all of our heart, without any fear, without any shame, without any guilt. And it frees us from dead works. Did you read? Did you hear that? Frees us. From, now, what are dead works? Dead works are all those human efforts that we do that do not lead to life, that cannot forgive us, that cannot save us, that cannot fill our inner emptiness, that cannot take away our fear or give us peace. For instance, how many of you guys know just acting religious is a dead work. No matter how many religious things you do, how many times you, you stand up or sit down and, or read out of a book, pray out of a book, how many know that can't give you peace with God? It can't bring about forgiveness. 
I'll tell you some other dead works, drugs and alcohol and, and other addictions and compulsions. They cannot take away the pain of the past. They can't erase the past. They can't take away your fear, your sense of rejection, your sense of inferiority. They are dead works. Only Jesus can heal our soul and give us peace and purpose and meaning. Now, the problem with sin consciousness is it causes us to live focused on our failures, on our sins, on, our, on the things that have been done to us that have been so cruel and have marked us. And uh, carrying this sin consciousness is a heavy burden. And so it, it drives us to try to seek relief in all the wrong places. But the worst thing that sin consciousness does, this kind of consciousness that we're broken, that we're flawed, that we're guilty, that we're ashamed, the worst thing it does, it keeps us from seeing ourselves the way God sees us ever since Christ spilled his blood and cleansed us. Here's how God sees us, Ephesians 1.4. We are holy and blameless before him, without guilt, without shame. Colossians 1.22 again says, each one of us, we are holy, we are blameless, we are beyond reproach when we stand before God. Ephesians 5.27, we are without spot, we are without wrinkle, we are holy and blameless. And all of this is given to us as an absolutely free gift because Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood. Nobody is so good that they deserve it. Nobody's ever been good enough that they can say, I earned that. And nobody is so bad or so broken that they are disqualified from receiving it. Because you can give a gift to anybody you want. That's what a gift is. God gives this gift to everybody, no matter who they are or what they've done or what shameful things have been done to them, they receive it as a gift. And so that means all of us have it. We are free from guilt and accusation. So say this with me. I'll say it first and repeat it a second time. Say, I am blameless before God. I belong in his presence. I am fully accepted. I will not draw back in fear or shame anymore. 1 John 3.21 says, if our heart does not condemn us, in other words, if we don't have this consciousness of sin and brokenness that keeps hammering us down and condemning us, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So once you understand this truth, you're confident before God. But the reverse is also true. If your heart does condemn you, if you walk around carrying this awareness of all that's happened to you and all that you've done, it's, a, it's so heavy. And if you carry that, then you will not have confidence before God. In fact, you'll shrink back from him. And you won't receive the things that God wants to give you. Now, your conscious, conscience or consciousness, your conscience is the window into your soul that lets heaven's light in. 
Now think about a window that's been neglected for years and dirt and dust and grime have just caked upon it. And maybe outside vines over years have grown over it and bugs have gone across it and it's become so dirty that you cannot see through it. But if you scrape away everything and power wash it and clean it, then light will come and flood that room again. Now, world, the same way, the awareness of our sinful thoughts, the remembrances of those things that we've done or those things that have been done to us, the rejection, the abuse, all of these things darken the window of our soul, our consciousness, and they don't let the light in. But when we understand and let the blood of Christ cleanse us, from all of that, then the light floods into our soul. Heaven's light floods into our soul, and we rise up with strength and joy and power and peace. <clears throat> One of the reasons that Christians backslide and fall into sin is because they, are, they can't enjoy all of the goodness of God. And so instead of facing him with open arms and receiving all that he wants to give, they, they kind of shy back and turn away. They shrink up because they know they're not worthy. They think of like, like, I don't deserve for God to bless me because of what I did yesterday or this morning. You know, I got to beat myself up some more so God will understand that I, I realize how horrible I am and maybe he'll throw me a few crumbs. <clears throat> you don't just... Only after you've let Christ wash your soul can you see him and see yourself in the right way. Now, something about being washed, being cleansed. You don't just wash something once. You don't just wash your clothes once. You don't just wash your clothes, your car once, because it will continue to get dirty. You must continually wash and cleanse them. And it's the same thing with us. Uh, we must regularly and intentionally Wash our heart in the word of God so that that window can become, remain clear because Satan attacks our mind with lies and with threats and with fears because he wants to put that sin consciousness back there so he can bring us back into bondage, the condemnation and shame. Therefore, we must be solidly rooted in these great biblical truths and wash our soul with them. The problem is that many Christians lack a systematic knowledge of these great truths of God, these great biblical truths that keep us free, that keep us, give us our identity, that assure us of our acceptance before God. We have a great ministry here at the church that's called Freedom Ministries, and uh, it's, it'll be starting it in August. It's a series of Sunday morning classes where they teach you systematically some of these great Christian biblical truths that you need to assure your heart of so you can always stay free. And then it ends with a two-day conference in September that's uh, more intensive and it's just powerful. And uh, this, is how, this is one of the reasons this church is so healthy. Do you know we've had over 900 people from this church go through those classes and go through that seminar. Many have gone through it twice, some three times, because there's such liberty there. John 8, 31 through 32, this is why it's so important, you know these truths, says, 
If you continue in my word, if you remain in it, if you know my word, if you continually cleanse yourself and your mind and your heart in my word, well, I'll read it up here. (laughs) I lost it. Then you are truly disciples of mine. Then you can walk with me. Then you can express me and follow me. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you and keep you free. That's why it's so important that we know these great Bible truths, that we read our Bible. Take that class. And when we know these truths and we're free, then we will say, I am whole. I am without blame. The past has no power over me. I'm clean. Now, Jesus Christ gave up his life on the cross and spilled his blood so we would no longer have to live under the tyranny of shame and guilt and a sense of inferiority already and brokenness. He died so that could be washed away forever. I want you to think about something. How would your life... Now, think about your life. This is not a rhetorical question. It's a soul-searching question. Think about how your life would be different if you had never been abandoned, if you had never been rejected, if you had never been abused. Think of how different your life would be if you had never done that one thing that you really regret, that stays with you all, that one great sin, that one great thing you did that really hurt somebody. What would your life be like if you had never done that one great failure that you think defines your life, means that you'll never accomplish anything. What would you do if you could just take a sponge and wipe that all away, and it would no longer be something you're always thinking about or conscious about, if it no longer had the power to bring pain into your life? How different would your life be? Because understand this, this is exactly what Jesus is offering you. That all of that is cleansed. And that you are a new creature completely. Our problem is not that we don't deserve God's love or God's promises. It's not that he doesn't care for us. It's not that that his promises aren't true. It's not that he doesn't love us enough or that he's not able to help us. Our problem is usually that we labor under this consciousness, this sinful, broken consciousness that makes us withdraw from God, doubt his love, doubt our worthiness. We are no longer like that Old Testament high priest who once a year, one time in his life, for a half hour, only because he was a representative of Israel, only because he was carrying the blood in for this one time, only then was he qualified to be in the presence of God. The curtain is rent. We live in his presence. You are always welcome. You always belong. Every sin is covered. And God wants us to live that way. Uh, Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated us through the curtain, he's taken us through the veil, through the curtain because of his death on the cross. Let us draw near, close to God, live close to God. 
with a sincere heart in full assurance, in complete conviction of faith that we are welcome, that we belong. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil consciousness, from the consciousness of our own brokenness. I want to finish up where we started. The greatest witness for God is a person who is fully alive, who has the joy and the peace and the love of God because they know that they know that they know that they have been forgiven and that they have been cleansed, uh, not only of all sin, but of all unrighteousness, that their soul has been healed. Then witnessing is not a burdensome duty. So many people are afraid to witness, but they feel the pressure because they know they should witness, but they feel afraid they're going to be rejected or they don't know enough. Witnessing for Jesus is not a burdensome duty. It is the joyful overflow of a heart that is so filled with the goodness of God that it can't keep it all in. And it can't wait to pour it out on others. I'm going to ask the worship team to come out here, and I'm going to ask you one last question for you to think about. Are you ready to live in the fullness of God's goodness? Are you ready to live fully alive to God, filled with his joy and his peace and his hope that never disappoints? Brimming full of the goodness of God, his strength, his joy, his transforming power. Here's my question. Are you ready to rise up from this place, from the seat you're sitting in right now, to rise up at the end of this service and to go forth without a consciousness of sin? Knowing that you are, it's a brand new day. Everything has been washed away. The love of God is yours. The presence, the help of God is yours. Are you ready to rise up from this house today and to go out there and to live that way in Jesus' name? How many of you guys are ready to do that? Let's see your hands. You ready? Let's all stand up. Let me just pray a prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank and praise you because of the goodness of your sacrifice for us. We want to thank you for what Christ has brought us brought about. We want to thank you, Lord, that we are delivered, that, that the past is dead and gone. All things have become new. We have become new. We're new creatures in Christ. The way we look, the way we think, what we see, what we remember, what we think about, how we live, how we react, it's all new. It's all been made new. We've been born again to a living hope. Lord, I just pray, help us to look through our, into our life in totally, with totally new eyes. In Jesus' name, amen.